And I think we have to create space. We have to stop what we're doing and be willing to slow down and create the space to allow the emotions to hit us, to not live in this avoidance stage. I know it's easier to avoid, but it's healthier to heal. Mm -hmm. And so give ourselves the space and the permission to do that. Welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. In this podcast, I will guide you on your journey to connect with the true source of your self-worth. Each week, we'll discuss barriers to unconditional self-worth, the connection between self-worth and relationships, self-worth practices you can apply to your life, and how to use self-worth as a foundation for living courageously. I'm your host, Dr. Adia Gooden, a licensed clinical psychologist, dance enthusiast, and a dark chocolate lover who believes deeply that you are worthy unconditionally. Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Chinasa Eloy, and we have a really rich conversation. We start our conversation actually processing our feelings of grief from learning that Black feminist author Bell Hooks passed away. We recorded this episode on December 15th and had just learned that she passed right before we recorded. And so we spent a little bit of time sort of processing our shock and some of the grief that we're feeling around losing somebody who's been impactful in both of our lives. And then we talk a bit about grief more generally. We are in the second year of a pandemic and so many people have lost so much. People, jobs, housing, places, you know, all these things, ways of living. And so we talk a little bit about grief and Dr. Chinasa shares her wisdom on grief from her own life, as well as some of the research that she's done. And then we move into a conversation about what it means to be a Titan, what it means to truly own your power and show up and share your gifts in the world. This is a really rich and nuanced conversation, and I know you're going to get so much out of it. So tune in, listen to the end, and as always, let us know what you think. Also love it if you would share this episode with a friend or family member who you think would benefit from it. Let's get into the show. Hello, I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Chinasa Eloway, who is my guest today on the podcast. Dr. Chinasa is an associate professor of educational leadership and higher education at Kennesaw State University, or KSU. She is also a professional speaker, executive leadership and life coach, and CEO and founder of True Titans Consulting Group. Dr. Eloway brings her professional background in educational leadership and her decade-long ministry leadership experience to her commitment to her work with her clients to help them navigate difficult career transitions and obtain a better work-life balance. Dr. Eloway runs the research lab for the study of emotional intelligence, leadership, effectiveness, and well-being of educational leaders. Her research focuses on grief, leadership, trauma-informed leadership, and practices in organizational settings and support for the health and well-being of historically marginalized and underrepresented faculty, staff, and students. Dr. Eloway also serves as a faculty success coach for the KSU Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. She resides in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and two 
beautiful children. Well, I am so very excited and honored to have you on the podcast, Janasa. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for this invitation and for having me. Yeah. Well, you know, your bio is so compelling, right? I think the research and the work that you do related to the mental health and the well-being of students and faculty and staff of color or from underrepresented groups, um, your research on grief and grief and trauma-informed leadership, I think are so relevant for where we are, right, in this world, both in terms of navigating what's been a very difficult and traumatic pandemic that has been filled with grief. And, you know, before we started recording, I mentioned that I was sort of shocked and and processing the news that Bell Hooks passed away. And I know, you know, for me, she's been really, her writing has been really powerful and instrumental. And I know that you shared, you feel similarly. And so I thought we might just take a moment to sort of maybe process out loud, like how we're just even taking in the grief of another loss of a, you know, a prominent Black intellectual, somebody who contributed so much to the world and to the field and and what it's like to just even sit with the initial feelings of grief um, with learning this news. Wow. I mean, like you mentioned, right before we came on, we learned of Bill Hook's passing. And I'm just taking a deep breath right now, honestly, because I feel like the the wind was knocked out of me when I heard the news. Um, In a lot of ways, Bell Hooks was prolific in a multitude of different ways. She was an active scholar, an activist. Um, she was a trailblazer in her own right. And to know that at this point in time, we've lost another icon really, really is disheartening. And it saddens me to my core. And I think in a lot of ways, as we continue to think about the many types of loss we have all walked through these past 18 to 20 months, specifically with this pandemic, um, specifically walking through the racial reckoning that has continued to unfold over and over again, dealing with the ramifications of of it all, honestly speaking, it's been a lot. It's been too much. And so as we think about how do we even begin to process this, I think we have to create the space to embrace our emotions. We have to name what it is that we are feeling and not, and not feel like we need to be strong in this moment, but allow, allow opportunities for our vulnerability to shine through and to acknowledge in this moment, especially in this moment, um, after the passing of Philips, that we are sad and we are grieving. And that is perfectly okay. It's going to take time because grief in and of itself requires time. And Grief of this magnitude requires that we don't rush through it at the same time. And so even as we continue on with our conversation, um, I know that there'll be opportunities to continue to reflect on her legacy and continue to honor her in multiple ways. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I completely agree with you that, you know, giving ourselves space to feel, to acknowledge it, to breathe through it. And You know, I remember when my grandmother passed away several years ago, my dad said something which was basically your grief honors her, right? Your grief is reflective of how much you loved her, of who she was in the world, of the impact she had on you. And I think it's so helpful to remember that when we're grieving, right? That grief is not 
bad. It is healthy and it is reflective of the relationship we had with the person who we lost, right? Or the people who we lost or the experience or the situation that we lost. And I think when we orient it that way, it's easier to sit with it. It's easier to say, actually in grieving, I honor this person. In grieving, I remember the impact they had on me and making space for that is just so important. I wonder, you know, you were just telling me about the research that you've been doing around leaders and grief. And I wonder if there are lessons from that research, from your own experience being a leader during this time of great grief that you might share with us or the listeners around how people can lead themselves, how people can lead other people as they navigate seasons of grief. Absolutely. You know, when when we talk about grief at times, especially in a larger context of society, it's seen as taboo. People mm. don't want to talk about death and dying, right? They, they want to stay in this realm of positivity and, and not necessarily deal with some of the unpleasant emotions that happen and are completely and totally natural in life. And so even the way that I arrived at this research project stems from my own bouts with grief. Um, I lost my mom a couple of years ago to cancer. And navigating loss in that season, it was extremely difficult and devastating to walk through that season myself. Mm. I had tremendous support from colleagues and family and friends around me. And so this was 2019. A year Mm. later, we're in the midst of COVID. And I really had this question in my mind about what does it look like for institutional leaders to really rise to the occasion, especially mm-hmm. in the higher education context, and provide support, resource, or tools to support faculty, staff, and students who are navigating some really, really difficult times. I just wanted to explore that open ended So I did a qualitative study and interviewed almost 20 leaders across the country. Mm-hmm. And the results were outstanding. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was totally amazed at how honest um, people were about even their own dealings around grief. People who've experienced loss typically have a different response to others mm. that they're leading. They understand how painful it is. And I'm specifically talking about the loss of a loved one, but I do want to acknowledge as well as I'm talking that we've seen a lot of different types of loss, a lot of different things that we've been grieving, loss of normalcy, loss of relationships, loss of trust and leadership. Um, mm-hmm. You name it, I think we've all walked through various types of and loss in this season, but I'm specifically referencing here just the loss of a loved one um, because I think leaders who've experienced that themselves understand that there's extreme care that's needed in this mm. current context and time. And so some key takeaways here are the importance of providing space to talk about grief, not straying away from the topic, not treating it like um, the elephant in the room, but mm-hmm. allowing people the opportunity within reason as they feel led and feel comfortable to share. I think also in that same vein, it was interesting on the back end to hear leaders' responses because in a lot of ways, you know, they're providing a lot of boots on the ground support for those that they serve, but the care loop is never closed. The one comes back in to check on the leaders mm. who are doing some of the caring as well. And so that was an interesting piece that came out of the study um, in terms of understanding that a lot of them have taken on the brunt of some of this, but at the same time, they're kind of left out there in the ballots by mm. themselves. And so mm-hmm. that was heavily illuminated here. But I think going forward, there's going to be more conversations around the need to not only be empathetic in this context, but to realize that when we say we're moving towards a post-pandemic future, that post-pandemic future comes with some baggage. And the baggage mm. is we have to be willing to acknowledge that people have changed. 
what was yesterday no longer exists. The people that mm. you worked with or knew last year or the year before last are no longer the same people. They require a different type of leader to step to the forefront to support them. And I think mm. leaders have to gain the tools and the knowledge they need to continue to stand present in this moment and provide the necessary support. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like such a powerful study that produced a lot of really important insights. And, you know, I think one of the things I was thinking of as you're talking is sort of these pieces of offering empathy and care and compassion to other people, and then also making sure that you take care of yourself, right? That those two things are really necessary. And I think the other piece is, I imagine that one of the reasons that those leaders who'd experienced their own, you know, grief and loss were able to sort of navigate this with more wisdom is because they knew experientially what it was like and could help. And I think all of us are going to be better able to support other people if we're connected to our own emotional experience, right? That the people who try to rush past their own emotions and ignore them and suppress them and say, I'm fine, they're going to have some trouble being with other people in the midst of grief, because I think, you know, grief is a uniquely challenging experience that doesn't have a fix, right? That one of the most powerful things that people can do with somebody that's grieving is be with and, sh- and bear witness and hold space, right? And if you have a tendency to say, okay, well, okay, let's do this and this strategy and then do this and then do this and busy your way out of it, it's not going to work. Or maybe that'll work for a little bit. You'll get distracted and then it's going to come back. And yes. so the patience, the presence, the ability to sit with things and hold space, I think is really powerful. And in, in some ways is counter to, I think, a lot of the ways that Western and white Western systems are set up, right? It's like, okay, you're going to have a, a session where people are talking about the grief and then we check that off and then they should be fine, right? Like there can be this tendency to be like, what are the tasks or what are the things you can do? And it's like, well, how do you open the space? How do you leave? How do you know that today you may feel one day, one way, tomorrow you may feel great. The next day you may feel really sad again. And all of that is a normal aspect of grief. Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? There's not one set strategy here that works period, at all. Grief is individualistic in a lot of ways, right? We don't all grieve the same. The ways that I grieve my mom were different from the ways my my siblings grieve my mother, right? Mm. Um, The reactions, the ways I found to cope, the things that I've had to continue to do to make sure that I am evolving in my healing have changed over time. And I think that's one thing that even when we think about um, our respective roles and where we perhaps serve or lead in different contexts, we have to be very intentional about not putting a blanket expectation over what it looks like to grieve, to not even evoke ourselves in someone else's story or narrative, thinking that we did it this way, everyone has to have the same reaction or, or grieve the same way. We have to understand that people are different and that they deserve the right and the privilege to grieve in the ways that they see fit. We can't define that for someone else. And so simply providing the space is, is one great strategy to use, right? It doesn't always have to involve talking or PowerPoint presentations or a <laughs> list of tactics. It could be a quiet space where people come in and journal or they utilize art or music or other um, 
innovative, creative modalities to really express what it is that they may be feeling inside. I think we have to get outside of thinking in the box. Like we can't just be in this in the confines of thinking that this has to look a particular way. Grief in this particular context as we're navigating this ongoing pandemic has to be one where we think about the multitude of different ways that we can provide opportunities for people to express themselves. And it will look different. And that is perfectly fine. And honestly, I think it will be even more appreciated to know that it's not just a check in the box that, okay, we did a program this week or this month, but it's a, it's a continuous thing that we have a culture of care and how we provide space throughout any day of the week. Yeah. I think that's great. And I hope that those of you who are listening are also sort of mapping this on to how you respond to yourself if you're grieving, because there's so often judgment, right? When I'm sitting with clients, right? There's, I shouldn't, there can be judgment for still being sad. There can be judgment for, I had a good day and I had a wonderful time and now I feel guilty because shouldn't I still feel sad, right? There can be so many shoulds. And I hope that people are hearing you, Chinas, as you share that grief is very individualized and are also then, if they're going through a grieving period, allowing themselves to be where they're at, right? And that part of it is accepting how the grief shows up for you, accepting, and then also figuring out what works for you. Maybe you try a number of different things. Maybe, you know, reminiscing is really soothing to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe moving your body feels really good. Maybe being still feels really good, right? So exploring what are the ways that feel good for you to move through this grief and knowing there isn't a right or wrong, there isn't a good or bad, and really allowing yourself to sort of work through it and and hopefully seek some support in it as you go through the process. You are feeding my soul right now because it's, it's so funny. I facilitated a program last night around grief mm-hmm. and I had an honest admission to the group. I told them when we were talking about um, strategies around grief that one thing that I realized, especially now that we're in the holiday season, is that I have to continue to be patient with myself. My mom passed away two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And there are times that I find myself getting angry with myself, thinking I thought I was farther along in my mm-hmm. healing journey than I am. Because there, there are good days and then there's some really, really bad days. And I think we have to acknowledge that there will be triggers along the way. I think about early 2020 when Kobe Bryant passed and his daughter, all the people that passed in the helicopter crash, that was an instant trigger for me. I didn't know them from Adam. I didn't know who these people were, but I felt the innate pain of it all. When the pandemic hit and we started seeing a story after story emerge, I felt it to my soul. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways, for those who have experienced loss, especially recently, and then walking in the pandemic with everything, um, when Ahmaud Arbery passed away, it was murdered, when Breonna Taylor was murdered, when George mm. Floyd was murdered, when all of the different things started happening and it started to emerge. Um, there was a connection there with even my own bouts with grief. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't pinpoint what it was, but I did have to acknowledge that it mimicked some of the symptoms that are commonly associated with those who are experiencing grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, um, just like you shared, it, it's different, right? There's no set cycle. You know, there's this, the five stages of grief and it's not linear. You could be at acceptance one day and then revert right back to anger the next, right? So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this requires patience with oneself. You may be five years out, 10 years out from the loss of a loved one, and you have to be okay if the next day you see a trigger and you start weeping. 
because I promise you, especially for me, it happens more often than, than not. And I've learned in those instances that I just have to accept it. I create the space to cry in the moment. I don't try to suppress it anymore mm-hmm. because suppression will come out in other forms, whether it's road rage on the, on the street or any other form, right? I just create mm-hmm. the space to, to just process. And I think we have to create space. We have to stop what we're doing and be willing to slow down and create the space to allow the emotions to hit us, to not live in this avoidance stage. I know it's easier to avoid, but it's healthier to heal. Mm-hmm. And so give ourselves the space and the permission to do that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I love that you're sort of tying in your own experience with grieving your, your mother, which is so hard. You know, I usually start podcast interviews with this question that I'm going to bring us to now. And I think it's a, it's, it's a good place to, in, to interject it because so often the difficult things we experience, whether that's grief or trauma or loss, can cause us to question our worthiness or question why we're experiencing something so painful. And I'm hoping that you could share a little bit about your own self-worth journey, right? And it doesn't have to center around grief, but I'd love to hear just when you think about self-worth and you sort of owning your worthiness, what has that journey been like for you? I think it's been a a journey of a thousand years in the making, honestly. Um, I've come a very long way. And I say that very humbly in the sense that there was a period of time where I just did not feel worthy to be in particular spaces that I occupied. And when I, when I say that, I, I'll start just by even um, talking about educationally. Um, mm. When I was looking to go to graduate school, I wasn't the first one picked up on the roster to join graduate programs, right? And I eventually got in. But that did do something to my confidence in the sense that I felt like I had to prove myself once I got into those doors. Mm. And on the back end, when I graduated and landed my first uh, professorship, I was at a, a place that was predominantly white. And as an African-American woman walking into that space, I was excited. You know, I was getting ready to teach research in an area that I'm, I'm absolutely passionate about. And I, I was looking forward to um, building relationships with my students. The interesting thing about that, though, is that I was not well received. And I wasn't received mm. well because of my age, my race, my gender, all of the different mm. isms that come into place when you walk into a new space that does not mirror the dimensions of your own personal identity. And so in a lot of ways, I began to discount what I had to offer. Mm. Um, the microaggressions chipped away significantly at my confidence to the point that I did not want to even be in my field. And mm. so there was a headway where I almost um, completely stopped teaching as a result of that because it was such a negative experience. And when it began to impact my health, I realized that no job was worth it. And so I made the proper steps to transition to my current institution, which has been such a healing place for me in a lot mm. of ways and has allowed me the opportunity to really build back my confidence ex- tremendously, to be honest with you, and to find ways to have the long-term systemic change that I've always wanted to be a part of. Um, and so I think um, my self-worth journey has been one where I've had to battle imposter syndrome mm. and acknowledge that it's there, but it's not there by my own admission. It's there because of my lived experiences. Um, there's a Harvard Business Review article by Jodi Ann Berry, and she's another co-author. I can't recall her name right now, but they talk about imposter syndrome and how typically for underrepresented populations, it's not that we don't have the confidence, it's because our experiences make us 
embrace imposter syndrome. We walk into these office spaces with chilly climates that are not welcoming, that are not inclusive. Mm-hmm. And then we get there and we don't and we don't feel welcome, right? And so then we begin to shrink back and not shine. And I think a lot of my journey was played with a lot of that. The microaggression mm. imposter syndrome really, really tried to beat me down. Mm. But when I say I can look you in the eye today and I know who I am, and there's nothing that anyone can tell me about that, I stand unashamed because I've taken the time to heal and get to the bottom of it. And I refuse to buy into these false narratives that others have tried to project on me. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think being in contexts where you're not welcome, where you're not responded well to, where you experience explicit or implicit racism, sexism, any of the isms, right? And it really is this challenge that you can start to internalize that and you can start to question yourself. And even if you don't start to question yourself, it's exhausting, frustrating. It feels like an uphill battle every day to just prove yourself. And so I think it's really great that you were able to see, you know, that this is the system thing. This is not a me thing that you didn't leave the profession, but you shifted, right. That you went somewhere where you'd be embraced and affirmed and appreciated and that you could see and now own that distinction between like, okay, that's their problem that they didn't welcome me, that they didn't see the gifts that I bring and all that I offer but it's not a problem within me. And when you went to a place that has been so accepting and affirming, that has been healing. So I think so many people can probably relate to your experience, especially I think in the context of academia, right? Not everybody goes the professor route like you did, but you know, so many of us go through college or go through graduate school and have similar sort of experiences along the way. Absolutely. (laughs) hands down absolutely yeah and I you know I also love that and now it feels like you're using your power as a faculty member and as somebody who can do research to think about and work on how do you then support those students who are coming through the pipeline and other faculty coming through the pipeline so they don't necessarily have to go through those same things or they can get the support they need to be mentally and emotionally well and supported Yes, it's, it's needed. I mean, I think you have to, at some point, you know, once you're able to actualize and realize that you are worth so much more, I think when you get to a place where you feel whole, um, you have to be able to utilize your agency, your power, your voice mm-hmm. to, to advocate for others. And I think in a lot of ways that's hard because um, it took me some time to find my voice, but the more I started to exercise it, the stronger it got. Mm-hmm. And it's continuing to even, even in this context, I'm still strengthening my voice. But when I tell you it's a thousand percent different than where I was beforehand, it's my ego. And so I've had to embrace a newer, more authentic version of myself and to allow myself the permission to grow into who I've always wanted to be, to not feel like I need to dim my light for anyone, um, to, to realize that I am an acquired taste, <laughs> to recognize <laughs> that it's okay. I'm not going to be for everybody. And you know what? That is perfectly fine. Okay. Um, Right. So is most fine wine and fancy food. Come on. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, we're just going to be moving differently. That's all. And so I'm okay with that. I think this people pleasing at times um, gets in the way of us being able to actually do work. And I think we just have to show up and just be ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that you talk about sort of using your agency and power because I think it can be really easy to feel like, 
oh, I have to wait until I'm totally, I'm tenured or wait until I'm CEO or wait until I'm managing director or wait until I sort of have ultimate, I'm the top person in order to use my power to help other people. And I think we really miss out on opportunities, right? To to help other people, to advocate. And I think it's important. I think some of the waiting comes from the false belief that you only, it's a power is an all or nothing thing, right? You only have power if you have this one position. And I think some of it also comes from, I don't feel totally comfortable advocating now because I'm sticking my neck out or, you know, it's a little bit risky for me because somebody still has some power over me. And so I'm not going to do it until I get to this position. And I think it's really important to think about what is your relative power in the space, right? And and what do you have agency to advocate for, for yourself, for other people? And to know that, yes, there may be some risks involved. And, you know, can you wait 10 years until you get to such and such position? Or could you start leveraging that now where you are now and using the power you have now, which is both empowering and helps other people. Yes. I mean, I think that's why it's okay to have our critical allies and co-conspirators to help you along the way, right? Because sometimes you may be in a, in a tumultuous position where you know that it could cost you your job, right? But you know that it's important that you still speak up and, and leverage your voice. And so I think there are other ways to think strategically about your connections and who is in your network that can also help you further your cause and get the word out, right? So you leverage your, I think you can find ways to leverage your power by looking at your network, looking at your connections, and then also looking at strategically what are things that you can do within your direct sphere of influence to evoke some form of positive change, right? I think in this context where there's just been so much unraveling these past 18 to 20 months, we don't even have the privilege to sit down and not exert our voice right now. Mm. There's just too much on the line. It's too much. So it could all change in a matter of months. And so what would, what would it behoove you to not go ahead and leverage the voice that you have now and the spaces that you occupy? Because you may not have that space tomorrow. Things are changing literally every day. Mm-hmm. Every day. Now, well, that sort of brings us to the next question I have for you, because I, I feel like, you know, what you're sort of advocating for, how you want people to use their power and sort of take ownership now relates to sort of the fact that you call yourself a Titan builder and, you know, how you think about what it means to be a Titan, what it means to become a Titan and how you see your role as sort of supporting people in, in bringing out their, their Titan. Um, and so I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. Like, how do you think about that? Like when you think about the word Titan, what does that mean to you? And how do you think that what is, what are the qualities that somebody embodies in order to be a Titan? I just love this question. First of all, let me just say that. So, you know, as you were asking me this question, I was thinking about the literal definition of what it means to be a Titan. I actually went online and grabbed this definition. It's a person of very great strength, intellect, or importance, right? And so one of the the key terms, I guess, that I call myself is the Titan builder, because I recognize the importance of being able to motivate and activate other people to move forward in a direction where they know they are called to be. And I think in a lot of ways, we may find ourselves um, uneasy about leveraging our gifts and our talents, mm-hmm. our skill sets and our intellect for various reasons, right? It could be the ways that we were socialized. It could be the ways in which we've experienced different spaces. 
that have tried to really um, detract from our overall health and well-being. We don't feel safe to do certain things, right? So um, to be a Titan means that against all odds, you still find ways to practice your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health to make sure that you are operating, that you are operating at your fullest potential. It means that you are mindful of what is required for you to rise to the occasion and to handle your business mm-hmm. and to still be able to show up as your fullest self, unashamed, unapologetic, and shine. Literally shine like the star that you are called to be. So to be a Titan means that you are unafraid. It means that you stand boldly and look at any opposition in, the fear, in, in your face and say, you know what? I got this. Okay, mm-hmm. I do this. And so you stand strong on that, knowing that you are capable and more than able to do what you were called to do. Mm. So I hear themes of confidence, themes of well-being, themes, themes of owning, themes of showing up and yes. shining. I love um, yes. talking about the, the sort of power, power of shining and sharing our gifts in the world, because I think that's when we feel most alive and most empowered, I wonder what you think gets in the way, right? So if there's a, you know, I might operate under the belief that there's a Titan within all of us, but not everybody is necessarily embodying or actualizing all of these aspects of themselves. And what do you see as some of the primary things that get in the way of that for people? Ooh, I think one of the biggest things that gets in the way is operating from the distorted vision of ourselves. Mm. I think when we don't understand that the ways in which we've been socialized in this world impact how we view ourselves. If we don't take stand up and go to an eagle's view and get a, a bigger picture of who we are called to be, then we tend to operate at that ground level. There are so many systems and structures and policies that will tell you that you are less than, that you can't make it, that you're not good enough, that the odds are stacked against you. But I think when you have a bigger picture, when you're able to say, in spite of what I see, I know that I am still called to this space. Then I think you were able to re, re, um, recalibrate that vision and look at it from a clearer perspective, especially when you know that you are trained, that you have the skill sets, you have the knowledge base, you have the proper connections. Whether you do or don't, I don't even want to leverage connections like that because I know that it varies. <laughs> because again, mm-hmm. just based on, where, based on where you land, it, it will vary. But I think operating from a distorted vision keeps one from operating as a Titan. So get a bigger picture. Recognize that you are worthy. Mm-hmm. That you are worthy to take up space. We need you to take up space. There are people that have taken up space that need to sit down. And we're <laughs> waiting for you to rise up and take your rightful post. And so I think that we have to realize that we have an obligation to operate at our best selves, not only for us, but for future generations. People need to see possibility models of what does it look like to be a Titan in this industry, in this field. For me, as a person of color, what does it look like to operate as a Titan, as my best self, healthy, happy, whole, experiencing joy in spite of everything else that's going on and show up and represent that for others to see and know that it is possible for them to do that and so much more for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, because I focus on self-worth and helping people to embrace their unconditional self-worth, it feels like there's a lot of alignment, right? When you know you're worthy, when you embrace the fact that you are here to share something, to do something powerful, then it is easier to 
tap into this power and strength and confidence, right? And I think it doesn't mean that you have to do everything perfectly. It doesn't mean you have to know everything. It doesn't mean that you can't still be learning, but that you're tapped into the truth of who you are and that you can sort of go into the world confidently and say, I have something to share and give. I don't have everything to share and give because no one person can do everything. That's not how we were supposed to be but that you can own what you are here to do and share and bring. And that that's really powerful. I agree. I mean, it's powerful when you know who you are and what you're called to do. It's powerful when you recognize your self-worth outside of what anyone has to say about you or who you are. When you know that for yourself, that's a superpower right there because everyone and everything has an opinion, but you don't have to listen to it. When you understand who you are outside of anyone else's affirmations, or words that they've spoken to you or about you, and you know you can stand in your own truth, unapologetic, and in your authentic way, that is a game changer in and of itself. Because there are too many people walking around here as imposters. They're not showing up. <laughs> they're not being their truest selves. And they're living someone else's life instead of their own. And so when we actualize and recognize that our self-worth is so important, then we begin to operate as a real person, as a person that recognizes that I am perfect and worthy to exist just as I am. Mm -hmm. Period. Yep. Yes. Yes. Amen to that. Okay. Come on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I, I wonder if you have, so when you're sort of supporting, when you're coaching people, when you're supporting people to sort of tap into their Titan aspects, their strength, their power, What are some things that you recommend? Like what if if somebody's listening to this and they're like, yeah, like I want to become a Titan. Like I want to be that in the world. What are some things that you might advise them to do or think about in that process? I would ask them to be very honest with themselves. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times we may find ourselves revolving around certain lies, you know, or we haven't given ourselves the permission to expose certain lies that we've bought into, right? We have to ask ourselves, what do we really want? Mm. I think we say we do, right? But I, I don't think we get to the bottom of it. I don't think we talk, I don't think we take the time to accurately process, is this still in alignment with what I said a year ago, five years ago? Oftentimes when we're growing up as kids, we hear this statement, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And when we grow up, I still find even with clients are like, I still don't know what I want to be <laughs> and I'm grown. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing here, right? And I think it's because they haven't given themselves the permission to get off the rail railroads and go a different way to take Mm. a different track right and so when we are thinking about what does it mean to show up as a titan it means that you have to ask yourself really really honest questions it means that you have to acknowledge that if you are misaligned with your values and your priorities or perhaps you've evolved over time and you realize that the spaces that you're in no longer serve the person that you've grown into it means that it's time to change Mm -hmm. And change is often very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. But when we take the opportunity to really explore what changes are needed and actually implement them, that right there is where the gems lie. And so I I encourage people when I'm coaching them and working with them first to take some time to work through some key exercises and getting clear about what do they want. What do you need to say no to? Because a lot of times we are saying yes to every and anything, right? And we Mm -hmm. need to understand the power of an aligned no. If it's not in alignment with where you know you're being called to go, then it needs to be no. You have to strategically understand where you want your time to be used effectively. 
We only have 24 hours in a day. I wish I could buy more time or create it myself. I know I'd be a millionaire as we speak, right? But because our time is finite, we have to be intentional about how we use it to make sure that we are going forward in the right direction. And so I think for those who are aspiring to get in alignment, who want to rise to the stature of what it means to be a Titan and dominate their field or their industry, or whatever area that they're serving in right now, they have to be intentional about saying, what do I want right now? Not five years ago, but right now, what is necessary to become the person that I know I'm called to be right now in this moment? And so when we take the time to really be reflective and get still and be quiet and allow all of the chatter to subside and ask ourselves those questions, I think that's when the truth begins to emerge. Because we are, we're not allowing outside influences and noise to influence us. We're willing to sit down and, and go deep with ourselves. Yeah, I think that's really powerful advice because so often we're on tracks that are what our parents want, what society says looks good, <laughs> what, you know, what's impressive to other people, right? Yes. All of this stuff. And I think about, you know, when I was in college counseling, so many students, right? These bright, brilliant students feeling like, oh, my parents want me to go to med school and I hate pre-med or I have no motivation to do this work. And then the question is, well, I must be lazy. Something must be wrong with me. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't sound like this is what you want to do. And if you don't want to do it, it's really hard to exercise a lot of power and forward motion and energy in doing it because you're not doing it for yourself. And so I think that is so powerful to advise people to say, slow down, pause, check in, quiet the outside voices. What is it that you really want for yourself? What is it that you feel most alive and most excited and most energized? And without having to, well, but it's not going to lead to a career in, or it's not going to make enough money, or what are people going to think without even going there? Like, don't let yourself go there yet, because that just like tants down the imagination. Can you just say, if I could spend my days doing this, this, and this, that would feel powerful. That would feel exciting. That would feel invigorating. That would make me feel like I'm really showing up and shining. And can you let yourself envision that? I think. You know, for me, I was at a job that I thought was a really great fit. And I, the title was great. And I had a faculty appointment. And I was like, yes, this is, this is it. And then I was like, eight months in, I was like, ooh, I do not like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. I was like, I do not like it's this real. job. <laughs> and even before I got to the total, like, I don't like it. I, I, had, I had done some like online course that was like, envision your life in three years. And I envisioned my life. And I remember thinking like, but how's that going to be possible with this job? Like, I remember having that thought, but now I'm living, I'm not totally at the three-year mark because there was some, you know, big fancy house and some other things that were okay. not quite there yet to get there. <laughs> but I think about the life that I'm living now as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's created, like, it feels so aligned. Like, I feel like I get to use my gifts and use my power and use my strengths in these amazing ways. And yes, I was making impacts in my other job, but I was worn down by it. I was frustrated by it. I was exhausted by it. And when you're in a space that's not in alignment, it is very hard to muster power. 
right? To truly shine. And so I think just slowing down to figure out what do you want? It doesn't mean you quit tomorrow, but it means you start to think about, okay, if I'm really honest about what direction I want to go in, what does that look like? And how can I start setting myself up to go in that direction? Absolutely. Absolutely spot on. hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. Well, this has been such a great conversation and I so appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your expertise and your insights with us, Chanasa. And I know that people are going to want to connect with you further. So I'd love as we wrap up for you to maybe just share if there's a website or social media, but, or like how, you know, how is it best for people to connect with you and sort of follow your work and and what you're doing in the world? Absolutely. You know, in this age of social media, I am definitely online. So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook and LinkedIn at Dr. Chinasa LOA. That's Dr. C-H-I-N-A-S-A-E-L-U-E. You can also go to my website at drchinasaloa.com and connect with me there. Um, I'll be doing a series of different programming and relaunching my blog in the spring. So I look forward to sharing more of my work there and connecting more with others. Wonderful. And um, we will link all of those things. We will link your website and your IG and your Twitter and your Facebook in the show notes. So just, you know, go to the show notes, wherever you're listening on the website, and you'll be able to find all of those links so you can stay in touch with Dr. Chanasa. Thank you again so much. I so appreciate you sharing your time and your energy with us. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me this week on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. Make sure to visit my website, dradiagoodin.com and subscribe to the show on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Adia Gooden. If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Lastly, if you found this episode helpful and know someone who might benefit from hearing it, please share it. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. This episode was produced by Chris and Tiana and the music is by Wadaboy.